0: So we sit with a body that's alert and upright, that's relaxed, but uh, straight. The eyes can be uh, gently closed or slightly open and gazing downwards. And the suggestion is to uh, notice the movement of the breath and whatever else is happening. Uh, we're really fortunate tonight to have an ongoing uh, serenade from the wind and the rain. There's an old uh, poem uh, and that says, All practitioners, uh, be careful what you study. Make your first priority (coughs) studying the love letters brought by the wind and the rain. Uh, In our practice, we're open to what is happening now. And learning to rest with some stability in our life exactly as it is moment by moment, breath by breath. Pretty interesting how many people come out on a wet, windy night like this. Uh, this happens to be my favorite kind of weather, so um, it was easy for me. Um, I don't know how many of you saw the. I guess the talk title just got recently posted. Uh, how many of you know what the talk is titled tonight? Excellent. So I can do anything. Very cool. <laughs> It used to be that uh, they'd ask for the talk titles like six months in advance. And I had all kinds of ways to avoid doing that Uh, because six months in advance is liable to be quite stale and uninteresting, at least to me, by the time the time rolls around to give it. So there's been some cultural shift. Uh, I got asked, I don't know, like, four days ago and I got it in yesterday so we're kind of moving towards the same page which is kind of nice. So the the title of the talk is, and this is really what it was, uh, Can I Help? And it could have been any variation on that theme. Can I help? May I help? Do you want some help? Do you need some help? How can I help? Have I helped enough? The word help shows up a lot, either uh, overtly or covertly, uh, throughout the day for many of us. And um, it's a complicated thing, this business of helping. Uh, every now and then, I'll get a, a very energized question from somebody um, about the practice. Well, it's very nice to sit and get the mind clear and see what's going on in the mind. and. Uh, you know, become a little less reactive during the day and uh, maybe a little less hurtful to myself and other people. But I really want to help. You know, I, I look at the news and I see, you know, this incredible suffering. Or I, you know, I walk around town and I look at people's faces and it's like, wow, people are really stressed. You know, so what good is this practice? How, how, can, I, how can I use it to help people? Um, Usually, or often, my first suggestion is don't, don't help, and the reason for that is what drives much of human beings' urge to help is a couple of things. One, I can't tolerate looking at your misery. So I want to fix that so I feel better. Which means, if, if you sort of live in the way that I think you ought to be living, then I won't have this stuff going on in me, and so I'll be okay. Which, when you think of it, is... A little nuts. Why? Can any of you right now be somebody else? Right? No. Can the person that I'm watching live their life in a way that causes me discomfort and maybe them as well? In that moment, can they be somebody else? And when I'm asking them to be somebody different or do something different so I feel better, one, I'm probably asking them the impossible because if they could do it differently, they'd already be doing it differently. And two, I've made myself dependent on them being different, i.e. somebody else, so I feel better. Now that's a recipe for frustration, confusion, anger, all sorts of things that are not particularly helpful. The other thing that drives much of helpfulness, and I put that in quotes, is a kind of arrogance that I've got this idea about how you ought to be living. You know, if I've I mean, my parents are both dead, but when I would go home and visit them, it was interesting. They didn't get along very well. And that was really hard for me. And one, my drive to help them often came from my own discomfort. You guys would fight less, I'd feel better. But the other piece that it came from was a kind of... of I use the word again, arrogance, that I know they should be living in a different way. They shouldn't have these fights. My dad shouldn't drink as much. My mom shouldn't put up with it. I know how they should be living. Now that's on the same spectrum as ultra-Orthodox evangelicals and imperialists. I know how you ought to be living, and I'm going to tell you how. Those of us who have children, and it's not just children, it's friends, bosses, uh, partners. When uh, parents look at their kids, and they see them in a relationship that, you know, they don't think is quite working the way it ought to work, then often parents will struggle with how to be helpful. And I'm sure many of you have had experience with that. Probably on, well, maybe on both ends. And how it feels to have somebody come into your life and try and tell you how to live. It doesn't feel very good, usually. And these are often people we really care about. Our kids, you know, brothers and sisters, sisters, brothers, our relatives, our partners. It's really hard when they hurt. And it's even more difficult when we think we know something that they don't, which is how to make it better. So as we go through this, I'm not against being helpful. As practitioners, we're under some obligation to take a close look at what's driving that need to help. It doesn't mean don't help, but it does mean know what's driving that. There's um, an old story from the uh, Chinese Chan, or what most people would recognize as the Zen tradition. Um, There was a uh, family and they lived in the late 700s, early 800s, and they were the Pong family. And there were four of them. There was a father, there was a mother, a a boy, and a girl. And uh, they were lay people. And apparently uh, this layman Pong, Pong Yun, uh, gave away most of his wealth. He and his family decided to live a very simple life, dedicated to practice. And at the time, there was a real revolution in, in China in terms of Buddhist practice. And uh, awakening was seen to happen in relationship, in the, in the sort of day-to-day uh, ups and downs of living. And um, this layman Pong would go around and he would have encounters and study and practice with some fairly well-known teachers. His daughter would often go with him. She was sort of the star of the show. Um, Her name was uh, Ling Zhao and uh, she apparently was very intelligent, very bright and very quick in terms of of, uh, practice and insight. Uh, The mother was known to be sort of drawn to the more esoteric and had a pretty rigorous, um, even stern aspect to her. The The young man, the boy, we don't know much about except that he maintained the family uh, garden and that's where they got most of their food. Often father and daughter would travel together. And um, they were also basket weavers. Apparently a... a uh, Tried and true occupation for contemplatives. You find it in the Christian desert tradition and uh, in many uh, contemplative traditions, you know, basket weaving. Um, so they would make baskets and then they would go into the little villages around where they lived and sell them. So they were coming back after one of these trips, and apparently it was not a very successful trip because Dad was really loaded down with baskets. And uh, the daughter had gone ahead and, and uh, he was coming down off a bridge and she had turned around and he tripped and fell and baskets went everywhere. And boom, right down on the road went him. She ran right up to him, threw herself on the ground right beside him. He said, what are you doing? He said, she said, I saw you fall, I'm helping. I'm helping. And he said, well, it's a good thing nobody was watching. So in this one intimate act, she's completely obliterated the difference between helper and helpee. You know, and if we look at one of the ways to understand this practice... Is it's one of intimacy. It's one of working around the edge of what separates us from being truly one with our life in all of its aspects. And that's why daily life and relationship is such a wonderful place of practice because it always shows us exactly where we pull back or where we grab on or where we push away. You know, the the annoyance, the anger, the fear, the anxiety, the confusion, that's always happening in some kind of relationship, even if it's the mind's relationship with the past or the future. And so we're always being shown where this illusion of separation is being maintained and how. And our practice is to Wear that down to see through that imagined separation so that we have a a life that is more integrated, more intimate, less frictional. And when you look at somebody like Ling Zhao, who throws herself down beside her dad, And says, I'm helping. What an intimate thing to do. What a kind thing to do. She didn't walk over and assume that she knew what he needed. She didn't walk over and assume to try and help. In this incredible act of empathy, she got right down beside him. Now, the first thing you notice in, in intimacy, the first step in becoming intimate with anything, is you got to stop running away. Right? I mean, it's like not rocket science. <laughs> right? The first thing you have to do is to stop running away. Whether that's literally running away, or running away by trying to get in and fix things, make things line up with my idea of what life should look like. Because intimacy is not about some ideal of how people ought to look, or life ought to look, or how anything should look. Intimacy is about being with the actual fact of how it is. It's only when we're in that place, when, with, when uh, in relationship to our partners or our children or our parents, we've completely given up this idea that somehow they're living in a different world than I am and I'm going to step in with mine and fix theirs. It's only when we stop and see what's driving that the fear, the range of discomforts, the helplessness. Helplessness is a big one, by the way. Only when we've stopped, and I don't mean shoved that away, but stopped by becoming intimate with that, to really know that, then, there's the opportunity for the kind of help that's new, that's creative. Because any so-called help that comes from the previous position is based on old conditioning, old thought patterns, old fears, old desires. How can that ever, ever show something that's never been there before the truly creative solution this is where this becomes not a how-to this is not a, a how to help our kids or how to help our parents or our partners or anybody else this is about the willingness to learn to tolerate what's creating that separation and being willing to witness all of it, all of it. So, what about the last line from Dad? It's a good thing nobody was watching. Now some people think that that's, you know, Confucianism was kind of a big deal in China. And uh, propriety was something that was uh, highly valued and um, treated severely if it wasn't followed. So here's this young woman throwing herself down beside her dad in the road. It's a good thing nobody's seeing that. I don't think that's, that's the point. I think the point is when we're really intimate, nobody's watching. Nobody's watching. The creative move, the 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 unexpected, the new, doesn't come from us being split into an observer and an observed. That's a kind of preliminary piece. When nobody's watching, and I mean the internal watcher, the one that says, eh, You better be careful. You better not embarrass yourself. You better not embarrass dad or mom. They really won't like that. Or your kids. Don't embarrass them. When that's going on, spontaneity is killed. Creativity is killed. And if we're acting from the place of, oh, I know what's best, or I can't tolerate what I'm experiencing inside, so I'm going to change you, when that's operating, no intimacy either. So it's like in those moments when, when the decks are cleared, there there's nobody watching, there's nobody trying to come up with a solution because the one that's trying to come up with the solution is the one, same one that created the problem in the first place. I see this as a problem, well, who's seeing it as a problem? Now I'm going to try and fix that. You with me? The, the, the same one that is defining and creating the problem is the one that's now going to try and figure it out. And we wonder why these things so quickly go off the rails in relationships. You know, as, as I'm, I'm talking, I'm thinking of another, another approach to this, and, and it's um, it ha- the, the story happens about a hundred years, or no, I'm sorry, about a thousand years after this little story of Lehman Pong and his daughter. Uh, there was a uh, still, I mean, he's not alive, but he's still much beloved in Japan, uh, it was a Zen poet monk named Ryokan. And Ryokan largely lived as a hermit, but he was what we call a convivial hermit. Uh, he got out, he played with kids, he, was, he loved to play games, and he was a little eccentric, um, one might say a little naive. There are many stories along the lines of, you know, playing hide-and-seek with, the, with kids, and uh, the kids getting called home, And him still hiding and being found the next day Um, would have made a great playmate, I suspect. He also liked his sake. He would go out and there were a couple of farms that he would visit. And uh, so a convivial hermit and and an amazing calligrapher, a a man of of seemingly endless kindness and um, an incredible poet. Known for his wisdom and compassion, um, he got a letter from uh, some friends who lived several villages away uh, who were having a very, very tough time with their son, getting into all kinds of trouble, um, shaming the family. um, And the parents were at their wits end. They had no idea what to do and they wrote Ryokan, could you come and please help our son? So Ryokan makes the, makes the visit and, and uh, they bring him into their home and uh, they're expecting him to help. Of course, that's what they ask him to do. Well, he spends the night sitting in, in meditation and hanging out with the family and doesn't say a word about the son, not word one. And um, he's getting ready to go the next day and he's an old man at this point, and the the, the boy walks out and is p- helping him put on his straw sandals. And Ryokan's standing there, the boy's doing the sandals, and he feels something wet hit him, and he's, and then he feels another drop hit him. And, and he looks up, and Ryokan's standing there silently with tears running down his face. That was Ryokan's way to help Now, the story has a happy ending. The boy was really struck by this overt show of love and compassion and unintrusiveness. So all kinds of ways to help. Genuine help doesn't come from the position of knowing In fact, nothing can be learned from the position of knowing. The best students are the ones who tolerate not knowing really deeply and become skeptical of thought's ability to figure life out. So we've got Zhao and we've got Ryokan. And uh, like I said, This is not a talk against helping. This is a talk about becoming more aware for all of us, myself included. And there's nobody, by the way, that's immune from this. You can ask my daughters. They will tell you. Um, It's, again, about paying attention. And not trusting the urge to fix it, and then beginning to see what emerges from that as we become more and more intimate. So, I think that's enough. So, um, we'll do some Q and A until we, you know, run out of Q and A, or we reach eight fifteen. Usually, I'll hang around for a little bit. Tonight, it's not going to be possible. The last time I ate was 11.30 this morning, and my machine's running on fumes, so (laughs) I'm going to zip out of here and get something to eat. If you do have questions that you don't feel comfortable asking in this kind of a a setting, you can get my name and email from uh, the office, and I'd be happy to respond to it. So, questions, comments? It doesn't have to be just about the talk. Maybe you've got a stumper that you've asked every teacher in town and you want to try it on me.
1: Yeah. more along the way experience the Hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh I'm terrible at remembering
1: the details of the comments, but what I do remember is one thing that stuck with me probably more than any other, and that was <clears throat> um, a phrase which was, who is sick? This one really stuck with me because I was very confused with it for a while, and there I was seeing... Uh, patients pretty frequently and this (laughs) wore this wore into me in a way that uh, not many things ever did Uh, because you know who who is sick who owns sickness for instance who owns unwellness and how does that affect uh, a relationship between two people who are trying to Mm -hmm. deal with it from one side or the other you know, the the typical way of approaching from a clinician's point of view is to be expert, brusque, perhaps removed, mm-hmm. um and in a way defensive. There's a lot of shells. And when you start to ask the question, uh I that I think you're kind of approaching too who is sick, mm-hmm. it changes the dynamic completely. Yeah. So I just uh yeah. I thought that was something that I just wanted to share.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it really points to this, what's really a fundamental religious question in the true sense of that word. Um, who am I? I mean, really, who am I? And who's, uh, there's a there's a, a, I think, a great story where the student comes a long way to, to meet with a teacher and, and the teacher says, so where have you come from? And he said, well, I came from, You know, such and such a place. And he immediately changes fields abruptly on this this person and says, what is this and how did it get here? (laughs) And it's like, whoa. I mean, talk about a really, really deep question. What is this and how did it get here? who is this, and how did it get here? You know, it cuts right to the heart of the matter. Well, the the student stayed with this person for seven years, or that's the story, and at one point came and said, well, I'd I'd like another conversation about this. And the guy said, oh, okay, so what do you got? And he said, "Uh, well, to say anything is to miss the point. That, that, these, that this kind of intimacy can't be talked about. It can really only be lived and in a, in a clinical relationship. The, in psychotherapy, anyway, I can, I can speak from that, that vantage point a bit, that I feel most alive in the room and the conversation feels most alive. And I've checked this out with, with people in the other chair, feels most alive to them, too. When there's no sense of me and them, or them and me. We're lost in the conversation which is creating us in the moment in a completely new and unexpected way. Good luck figuring that one out. There are certain conditions that... Kind of are required for that to happen, but it doesn't, you don't have to pay somebody to have this experience, right? I mean, you've all, you all have that experience probably every day where you're caught up in a conversation. There's no struggle, there's no defensiveness, there's no trying to make a point. There's just this conversation. And if somebody would come in and ask you, do you in this moment before I ask the question were you aware of your name, your age, your gender, your occupation? Well, you weren't. All of that was like irrelevant, and it's life—just life. And that's one of the that's one of the ways you know whether it's koan introspection or working with. Uh, on upon a, the breath awareness and uh, accessing impermanence and emptiness of self, i.e. impermanence, doesn't matter how you get there. It matters that you have a practice that seems to, to really fit and that you know why you're practicing and that you get how critical real practice is. You know, not, not five minutes a day or ten minutes a day or, you know, kind of when I feel like it. But a real intention to sit down, wake up, and be in it for the long haul. And there's really no substitute, I think, for that. So, thanks. Yeah, please.
2: Um, I don't know if I would have used... Help initially before hearing your talk, um, but um, I guess my question is: How do you try to help somebody who's trying to help you, like <laughs> like a kid? You know, I mean, I can't say anything without my daughter saying Drew. You know, I mean, constantly judging how, how I approach things, and it's irritating as hell because I'm just being me. But she, how do I get her to see me for being me rather than her trying to help me? You know, or that that type of situation.
0: So let, let me see if I've got this. I
2: know I was hoping I could express it correctly. No, no it's Talk
0: great. About. So so you're trying to help her. Help me. Yeah. Well, to, and then she's not, trying to, to she's know. trying to help you to shut up, is that the kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. See I, I get that one pretty quick. Uh, yeah. parenting. Um, what? It's certainly a lot of where the action happens. Um, you will cut down, of course. I'm going to tell you something you don't know already, right? You could almost, you could tell me what I'm going to tell you would be my guess, right? Um, the less you try and help her, the less she's going to try and help you.
2: I didn't see that coming. <laughs> sure <he> did,
0: <laughs> and so the practice is to notice every time the urge comes up to help her. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have seen the Bob Newhart show. He 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 was uh, Bob Newhart, a comedian who, on the show, was a psychologist, which made most psychologists really squirm. There's this classic um, little vignette where somebody comes in and has made an appointment and he says, well, you know what the rules are. You've got... I only do five-minute sessions and I only do one of those and that's five (laughs) dollars. So do you understand what the ground rules are here? You've got five minutes. I don't make change. And... At the end of five minutes, we're done, and you won't ever see me again, okay? So tell me what the problem is. So if this would be you, it would be, I'm, I'm trying to get my daughter to do, stop it. What? <laughs> stop it. I don't understand, you don't understand? Stop it. And it goes on and on and on and on. That's an interesting way to think about practice. That we really have to kind of rein in the horse to stop, look, and listen. And the momentum of this stuff is huge. Particularly with people that we're really, really invested in. You know that we have a real heart connection to. Partly because our own vulnerability is so scary to us that it's really difficult to be in touch with that. And I I, I don't know anything about what's going on with your daughter that that you're trying to work with.
2: She just gets embarrassed by me being myself. Basically, <laughs> which, would which you, most parents have to deal with.
0: Would you want to give me a quick example of that?
2: Well, I'm, I'm fairly vocal and don't have a lot of filters, and she calls me on that all the time. But I'm just being myself, and I really can't rein the filters back. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not offensive, what I say, but she sees it as being offensive. Or it depends how a person reacts to it, I guess. Uh, but
0: Have you said to her when she fires back, gosh, I guess I embarrassed you again, didn't I? I'm really sorry.
2: I haven't said those words now.
0: Yeah. How? What happened with you when I said that?
2: With yeah. what, With me? Yeah. Oh. Um, that. Yeah. I'd like to see which how she answers it.
0: Yeah. You know, that's the. We often get sort of caught up in these patterns that we can't. Get aside from. And if we want to, if we want to slow things down, if we want to sort of shift the field, first we have to slow ourselves down. It's like Ling, Ling Jia throwing herself down beside her dad. That my my suggestion is a throwing yourself down beside your daughter. Comment. Because right? she at that point,'s hurting. It, her, you know, for whatever stuff has happened between the two of you over the years, she's got a wound about this. And for a parent to then jump down in the road with them is something that usually creates some kind of shift.
2: Well, I understand that. And it's not just me. I mean, she would generally have her way. I mean, she's trying to fix people, basically, what you talked about before. Yeah. She's trying to help everybody else by how they should be. Yeah. So um, is it worth like having, telling her about this discussion and seeing how she reacts to that, or throwing it back to her, what you just said, is, oh, that must have really embarrassed you. Or, I mean, is because then I'm trying to help her by telling her about this conversation. To make her not be the way she is. So yeah, there you so, go. Yeah, well, that's, what I don't that's why I'm asking for <laughs> yeah. clarity. Yeah, <laughs> you know,
0: it's I I don't think there's a there's an easy response to this because it's clearly complicated, and there are you know there are there's stuff going on for both of you that's that's developed over time, and um, you know I think. Often, when we take the unexpected empathic position, anything that we can do a little differently will help things shift. Yeah, you know, I, I remember when my uh, my oldest daughter was like, I don't know, fourteen or fifteen, and she was she was going through a hell on wheels period of adolescence, and I mean, it was it was like brutal. And I came down through the through the dining area, and she was sitting in the family room. And I walked in, and she looked up at me and kind of snarled, do you have to breathe so loudly?
3: <laughs>
0: I, so this is how it is, eh? It's like, and it's like I got right there. It didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter what I did the only best chance was to make it the least worst I could do. Right? Anything was going to make it worse. It didn't matter. The least worst. And all I could do was just kind of turn and walk out of the room. But there was no attitude on my part. It was like, there was just this seeing of, like, there's nothing I can do, you know? And I think that, that that's often some, that, that's something that can happen with anybody that we really get. There's an old koan, when, when nothing you do will do, what will you do? Right? It takes away, well, I won't do that. Well, that does, that's still doing something. I won't do anything. Nope, that doesn't work either you know it's like when we when we get rid of or clean the house of all the old ways of doing things we're left with i don't know what to do that's the most fruitful moment it's loaded with creativity and possibilities that we've never entertained before
2: thank you i think my 5 minutes are up <laughs> <laughs>
0: so stop it <laughs> Yeah.
3: So I'll I'll tell you a short story about my uh, stepfather's death. I had an incredibly difficult relationship with him. He was nothing but harsh and judgmental and belittling and alcoholic and and cherished us somehow, according to my mother. But I never under you know I never mm-hmm. felt that. Um, so I was uh, he was his dementia was progressing, and I would go down to Connecticut um, and spend a couple of weeks at a time to help help my mother out to deal with him as well as just be with him because he wasn't entirely safe on his own. So um, I would deal with these stressful periods by going off into the woods and meditating. So it was towards the end for him, and I went up to the woods, and I was sitting on a rock by a lake, and my cell phone rang, which was kind of impossible because there wasn't any reception up there. And she just said, Pop died, come home. Mm -hmm. And I didn't... was not a moment that I could have prepared for although it was inevitable and I, you know you know in your head but it was this amazing flow of one-pointedness in action mm-hmm. just to go and to get there and to get her and to go to the hospital room and I knew that she would have a really difficult time dealing with seeing him dead so I went in first and I did some prayers and some just simple kind of like smoothing the energy out around him kind of very simple kind of ritual. And then I helped her by leaving. I helped her by being there first. But then by leaving, I knew that I needed to, that, that I needed to not hang out with her with him. But I needed to really leave and let her be with him. And the surprise to me was when I walked out, I felt completely um, empty. Both this empty and completely open and no thought except, it's over. And a sense of uh, something something new. Mm -hmm. But not new like, oh boy, just like, the slate is totally clean. Mm -hmm. And I didn't expect this. Mm And what a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not fill it with anything. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah.
4: My inner identity observer is like, tracking the male people raising their hands, so I'll just own that. But I identify as male, and I will ask a question. Um, could you say something? I, I, I dig what you're saying. I like it. And I'd like to hear something about roles. We could maybe say teacher, coach. Uh, I work as a chaplain myself. Mm-hmm. So kind of like helping roles, the therapist perhaps at times, um, mm-hmm. Where I've experienced, I guess, on both sides, um, the benefit of, let's say, confidence or of um, maybe not like assignments, but a kind of uh, confidence in a suggestion or maybe even a like do sure. this. Just do it. You can do it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, where does uh, something like confidence or confidence in what is helpful, where does that fit into the, what you're saying?
0: You mean your confidence in the person you're working with?
4: Yeah, or maybe even maybe the word authority comes to mind also, um, mm. speaking with authority or from authority or mm. with confidence in what could be helpful, especially in like a coach, teacher, chaplain, sure. therapist role.
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, a lot of this depends on the contract that we've got with the person in the room. You know, if somebody, if somebody shows up and, and wants, you know, they're having panic attacks, and their agenda is to get rid of those panic attacks. Um, that's the contract. If I'm going to enter into that contract, then that's what I'm going to try and deliver. And, um, I mean, there's, it's impossible to have a completely level playing field, either in the consulting room or in the interview room. Um, you know, I, I, I think that that's just fantasy, to think that, you know, there's not, a, there's not a difference between the, the two sides of the room. Um, I don't think that that's... Hmm. I have a lot of things going on in response to your question. When I look at, when I look at young teachers or young therapists, Naturally, they tend to to rely more on knowing, and they and it's a, and it's a kind of of, of shallow knowing, uh, simply because the 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 years and years of experience and training are just not there yet. Same with same with young teachers. I think you find that as as you develop a wide range of experience. I mean, it used to be said that it took at least 10 years of full-time practice after one's clinical training was over, after your, your uh, degree, after your residency, after your therapy, whatever, to make a good journeyman therapist. Okay? Uh, the standards are really, really very different today. The whole apprenticeship model is hard to find, either in, you know, the me- in meditation realms or in clinical realms. You find as you accumulate experience and understanding, authority has a different kind of feel to it. It's, it comes more from experience. And so a suggestion can be made gently and openly. You know, have you thought about, and when I suggest that, how does that hit you? You know, I'm I'm not a fan of, of either a meditation teacher or a therapist nodding and saying, "Uh uh-huh, every, you know, 10 minutes. I'm also not a fan of people who sit down with a template for cognitive therapy for anxiety and go through the template and then, you know, tell their patients what to do. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons that that's going on in this day and age. I think it's lousy therapy, frankly. Um, You know, this is about creating a learning environment, essentially, whether it's a meditator or a patient. And it's about learning how to hurt ourselves a little less and how to hurt others a little less. And over time, we bring a whole increasing repertoire to the table to engage people with around that. And I think one of the, one of the things that, that we also bring is that I don't know your life and how to live it better than you do. I don't know that, and I won't ever know that. So anything that happens in terms of suggestions or advice or it, it has to be done very gingerly. You know? And frankly, this stuff, the healing part of this really happens in the relationship. It's the quality of the relationship. They've had a they've had n- numerous studies, and they, they, they go back and they ask both therapists and patients. What, what was most memorable, what was said that was most memorable over the course of your therapy. And they could do the same thing with, with a lot of meditation teachers and their students. You know, What was the most important thing? And almost invariably, what a patient or a client would, would remember that was said that was important, the therapist would not remember having said it at all, and vice versa. And what began to come out was... It's not what's said. It's it's how this relationship is held and how two people learn to hold each other. And one of the people in the room happens to have a lot of experience, hopefully, in one area that they bring to the table. And so does the other person. And so then there's this coming together and this holding together in which the creative stuff begins to happen and sometimes yeah i may say to you stop it you know and usually i won't know why or where that came from and what i've learned what i've learned is if there's some i can feel it in my body if it's wrong i can feel it you know and and the more we're attentive to what's going on in our bodies The body is incredibly wise and knows often well before the mind does. And that's why a sitting practice that allows us to become really intimate with our physical body and what happens in the link between thinking and and how it impacts the body is so very important. Because that's our tool. That's our tool for life and living. And, yeah, so... Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah.
5: Um, So kind of the converse of what you talked about and what other people have asked, what about navigating relationships where you feel that the other person asks for help a lot? um, When you are willing to give help, but you don't feel like what they're asking is either reasonable or will actually help them right. actually give them what they need in the long run?
0: Yeah, I don't know.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, that's, that's, a, that's a tricky one, I think. Um, because we can get um, guilt-tripped by the other person We can uh, get maneuvered around by that kind of thing. Um, The first thing that came to my mind when you asked that was, what do you really want? And what in the world makes you think that I can do that? You're asking me something I can't deliver. Why would you be asking me that? That's just kind of what popped to mind. Um, But, you know, it's a great question, and I think it's something that we all encounter. Um, And even when we're not asked directly, people will ask it of us behaviorally. They'll keep presenting the same behaviors over and over and over again and, and effectively be, go, be going, and now, you know, what about now? Um, and this, this idea that somehow I can fix your life or I can tell you how to live your life differently well, if I'm not really clear how messed up that is, there's no way that I'm going to be able to say it to you. you know, so I think that that's if I, there's nothing I can do, particularly about somebody who's putting unrealistic demands on me, except to say, you know, I'm, I'm 69. I can't run wind sprints anymore. Why are you asking me to do that? And then to see what happens. The other piece is that often when you give somebody advice or suggestions, well, usually it doesn't work. And then they come back with, well, I tried, but it didn't work. What else you got? Um, And the sooner you can kind of meet that one, the better. Um, So. Thank you. Sure. Yeah.
5: Just to round out this this group of questions from white people, um, I thought I would... um, I kind of wanted to ask a a similar question about um, how do you deal with wanting help, which is a place that... I find myself a lot, and I think probably most people do. Um, and I think, sort of, the things that you mentioned I mean, asking yourself, well, what is it that I really want, and how can I expect that somebody else can provide that? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because as I was thinking that to myself, part of me said, uh, kind of poked its head up and said, well, but wait, um, sometimes things, well, things almost always look different to another person. Right. Um, And then that made me think of something else that you said, which is something I've been thinking about a lot in my life, which is the difference between seeing and feeling, Mm. and how often when I think about my situation and improving it, um, I'm thinking about seeing it from outside and what would look better, Hmm. as opposed to feeling it from inside And seeing what feels right or like what feels better. Um, And I guess, so I don't know if that's really a question or just something I wanted to share, but um, I guess if there is a question, it probably is something that has to be answered through practice, but the question would be something like, um, you know, like, I mean, I think for me personally, there's a clear imbalance. I do too much looking. As if from outside, and so I need to work on cultivate the feeling part. Mm-hmm. But I guess, um, in general, there must be times when seeing is important. <laughs> and I guess I don't know. I, maybe if you have any any guidance about when that would be interesting, but maybe it's just a question I'll answer myself.
0: Well, real see, yeah, seeing includes feeling. You know, it's not—they're not—they're not two separate things. It's more a kind of shift a bit in the paradigm. That um, there's—you know—there's hearing, and I see the—I see the droplets on the glass. I hear the wind, and there's there's a seeing of that as well. You know, there's a—you know—one way to think about this work is is creating a larger container that larger container, and we don't really create the larger container. We see where our, our uh, the vastness of our container is self-limited. And usually that's through stories, narratives that we tell ourselves. And so as we begin to, to challenge those, to begin to tease those apart, as we begin to have conversations with, with somebody else who may have a different perspective, you know, it's, it's not that we don't look for those kinds of differences in the conversation. In fact, that's often what's helped shift the, 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 the situation. You know, you get a larger ecology of ideas, if you will. Right? It's that it's, it's not from a place of, oh, I've got to fix you. And at some point, it becomes not from a place of, you need to be fixed, right, that, that those are some of the ideas that limit the, the, the perception of this vast container, right? so that the idea exchange, the conversational, the affective exchange doesn't come from a place of, oh, I got an agenda for you, right. It comes from, I'm trying to meet you and trying to engage in a conversation together that seems connected at multiple levels and trusting that something different will come out of that unexpected for both of us. And I know something something right, good, useful has happened after a conversation when I feel like I've learned something. Funniest thing, the other person, when I ask them, it inevitably, invariably says, "I did too," and they can say exactly what it was, what shifted. But there wasn't an agenda to make that happen. You know. So, uh, thank you. Yeah, we're going to have to stop. Um, thank you for hanging out for this. Um, and um, enjoy the rest of your evening. It's been a treat for me. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.